Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, church. He is risen. Sweet. Happy Easter, guys. I want to take a minute uh, to start here and for you to get in your Bible and to go to Isaiah. Uh, go to Isaiah uh, 53, 11. I know that's not where we are, so I'll give you a minute to go ahead and, and find that. It's the biggest book in the Bible. You stick your thumb in there. You might just guess where it is, and then you can pretend like that's exactly what you were you knew where it was. Also take this minute, if you haven't grabbed any coffee, water, donuts, or Snickers that are in the back, we don't do that every week, but please take advantage of that so that I am not tempted when everyone leaves and I have to clean it up. So do me that favor. Isaiah 53, 11. Okay, so today <clears throat> we're going to take a break from Revelation. And in Revelation, we've been studying the risen Christ, right? All of Revelation is about the risen Christ and his interaction with this church that he loves. This is after the Gospels, after Jesus has been resurrected, after he's gone to heaven and he's communicating with his church. And so today I thought, well, we better, we better get back into the Old Testament. Let, let's go ahead and go back. We're going to go so far back into the Old Testament, we're going to see this conversation that actually takes place 700 years or so, 700 years-ish, before the Gospels even take place. So near 800 years from Revelation backwards today to, to this moment. And I'm going to start by praying for us. Lord, you are awesome. I, uh, I love Easter. Lord, we love you. We love that this is our holiday, that this is our, um, that, well, every day would be special, Lord, like this, but there's just something about Resurrection Sunday where we just specifically uh, just stand and sit and sing in awe, and our, our souls are in awe because we know because of the resurrection, uh, we're going to be singing together forever, and we're going to be able to see you face to face and just, oh Lord, it's going to be so overwhelming, it's difficult to, to comprehend, Lord, but we know that you love us, which we see, Lord, in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Make it real to us this morning. If any of us are, are, are not believers in Christ this morning, may we be convicted, and, and may we be, in that case, also open-minded to why everybody else in the room is just so so excited this morning, Lord, and we do this all to the glory of Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to start this morning by actually reading part of the passage I read last Easter. Uh, I may have spent a couple hours writing the exact same sermon from last Easter before I went, looked it up. It's like, wait, this sounds familiar. Where have I heard this? I, I started writing the same sermon again. Um, <laughs> so 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4 Paul speaking, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. And so this is Paul speaking after the resurrection. And one of the things that Paul's pointing out about the resurrection is one of the things that makes it awesome is the prophetic elements that everything that happened was prophesied years, years. We're looking, well, from Paul, probably 750 to 800 years after this prophecy we're going to look at this morning. And so my question is, what are your first thoughts and your first emotions when you think about the resurrection? Think about it. Like, what's the first thoughts that come to mind when we consider the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Awe? I hope so. Joy? Hope? Wonder? 
Easter is that Christian holiday where we get to focus on the life, death, and specifically the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means to us, right? We're here for a reason. This means something to us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means something to us. But have you ever wondered what the resurrection meant to Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, we're cer- we certainly get the better part of the deal, right? But have you ever thought about how Jesus views the resurrection, how he felt when he was resurrected? The first person to respond to the resurrection of Jesus was Jesus, right? There's a lot of sermons this morning about who was there first, who experienced, who understood the resurrection happened first. It's Jesus, right? So can you imagine what it was like for him to realize the resurrection, to realize after three days what had just happened? And so in Isaiah 53, 11, we read this, and and this is really the heart of our, our sermon this morning. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. And so what we find here in the emotion and intellectual reasoning, God reasoning of the resurrection that he has survived anguish. Imagine God coming to earth. Just that by itself is anguish if you're God and then become human. And then he suffers. He's rejected. He's betrayed. People hate him, try to kill him. And then they finally kill him. And then there's this moment where he is resurrected. And what does it say about him post-resurrection, post everything he went through? What does it say about Jesus in this passage? He is satisfied. He is satisfied. This is interesting. If you've ever thought about how did Jesus feel after the resurrection, well, he is satisfied. His eyes were closed in death. On the cross, he gave up his spirit, right? Tetelestai, it is finished. He gives up his spirit. And then he opens his eyes, realizing what has happened, and he is satisfied. When was the last time you were satisfied? Like satisfied, not like in a good mood, not like you had a good day, but I mean satisfaction, complete satisfaction, plan came together, everything worked out perfectly. You got to Easter Sunday on time, right? Everything just perfectly lined up. With that in mind, how do you celebrate satisfaction? We don't honestly have satisfaction every single day of our lives. We don't end our days thinking, I was so satisfied today. It's a rare occurrence. Like it, it is, you know, graduating. It, it, it is just something you work towards that you feel accomplishment, that, that you are completely satisfied by. And so with that in mind, how does one celebrate the satisfaction of being the firstborn of the dead? Like how do you celebrate that? And so I don't know, and I'm not trying to to be heretical or joke in any way, but we have Jesus who is God, 100% God in everything. Just imagine the mind and spirit of that, but he's also in human flesh, realizing that he has been resurrected. And I don't know what, what, nobody was in there, right? But I just imagine, I don't know if I imagine him giggling, but like fist pump, you know, a dab, Something like he just realizing, maybe he just crosses his arms like, I did this. Like, can you imagine the satisfaction of accomplishing this? Now, how many of you this morning would describe your relationship with Jesus as being satisfying? Right? I'm glad I saw some hands. Praise God. (laughs) So what is satisfaction? Well, the first definition I found online, I think summed it up wonderfully. Satisfaction is the fulfillment of one's wishes, expectations, or needs. 
the pleasure derived from this example, he smiled with satisfaction. Just as I imagine Jesus smiling with satisfaction after the resurrection. <laughs> How amazing. He had to have smiled or laughed or danced. Because we read in, in Hebrews 12 too, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So he did this with joy in mind. He did this with a celebration in mind. Like if we have athletes here or business people who go through this long process of trying to get something done and succeed at it, right? Success is so satisfying. And what's interesting here is that it says that, that his joy is in his work. And so part of the satisfaction of Jesus is his followers, those who believe in him. And so if you are a believer in Jesus, raise your hands this morning. You are part of the satisfaction of Jesus. You can put them down. But that's what this, this says here. He saw and was satisfied. What did he see? He saw everybody seated in, seated in a room 2,000 years later. That people all around the world are coming to him for life. And he is satisfied. That's all he can think about. Now, when I think about the idea of satisfaction... And this is sad because it's true. It's not funny, it's sad. But when I think of satisfaction, two things pop into my mind when I think about satisfaction. One is the song by the Rolling Stones, right? Can't get no satisfaction. I'm not saying this is a good thing. I'm not saying this is a godly thing. <clears throat> this is just me being honest. And, and the second thing that pops in my mind is Snickers, right? Am I, am I the only one? Like, and so all those different commercials, Snickers satisfies. That's why there's Snickers on the back table this morning, I do not want you thinking the whole time I preach that, wow, you really want a Snickers. Go get one. <laughs> Deal with that. Satisfy your hunger. And then we could talk about satisfying your spiritual hunger this morning. So this morning, we're going to look at the satisfaction of his resurrection. We'll look at the satisfaction of the Father, of the Son, and of the saved sinner as well. Now, our text today is going to be Isaiah 52, 13. Just backtrack a little bit. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. And this passage is what's known as a servant song. If you haven't been through the book of Isaiah before, it sounds kind of weird. Well, what's going on in there? There's four servant songs in Isaiah. Four specific songs, this being the last one of these songs that that is a behind-the-scenes moment uh, with God the Father and his servant. And in these songs, we, we find the most prophetic elements of the ministry of Jesus. We see prophesied the fact that he is going to be a servant, that he is going to suffer, and that he is going to be exalted. The servant is the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read a big chunk of scripture, second week in a row, but I'd rather have you hear the, the words of the Lord than, than just my, my summary. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which have, they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And he opens not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opens not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked wand and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That is the word of the Lord. That is the fourth servant song. That, that is the gospel. And so that, this morning, let us begin by looking at the satisfaction of the Father in this passage And what we find, the first satisfaction of God the Father is the satisfaction of a great plan. The satisfaction of a great plan, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and be exalted. So this was the plan from the very beginning. Right? Way before Easter, way before Jesus comes to earth, this is the actual plan. They didn't, they didn't, this wasn't played by ear. This is very specific. He would come from heaven down to earth and be high and lifted up. And I do believe, because this is a servant song, that this is a reference to the cross. This is a reference to the cross because it sounds like the words of Jesus in John 3, 13 through 15, right, right before John 3, 16, where it says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so we must understand right off the bat, this was the plan for Jesus to be high and lifted up on that cross. And then after his death, to be exalted. That is why I believe we find the resurrection in this servant's song. Because over and over, we're going to hear Jesus died, he's crushed, he's afflicted, he's smitten, he's destroyed by God. And then the very next words are, Jesus is satisfied, he's happy, people are saved. And so even though there's no verse in this passage about the resurrection, it is most certainly about the resurrection. There's two things happening. Jesus is being crushed and Jesus is celebrating. And so the resurrection is absolutely in this text. And so we have a great and satisfying plan from the Father that he found satisfaction of in the execution. In the execution of the plan, chapter 53, verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And so, yes, it was people that oppressed the Lord, made fun of him, just, you know, beat him, right? Just beat him to a pulp. There's no way to sugarcoat it. We're so mean to Jesus all the way till his death. But what we learn here is also what the Father gave him in crushing him was worse, right? And so... It brings Jesus grief. And we find these words in Matthew 27, 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Jesus didn't say that to people. As he was being nailed to the cross, he didn't ask them, you know, what their problem was. He's asking for their forgiveness. But what's taking place in the Father's rejection of Jesus, right? The Father is holy. Jesus has never experienced this for eternity. He is grieved by this. This is the worst part of the cross for Jesus. Did it hurt? I am sure it hurt. But not as much as the Father looking at Jesus in a different way. Looking at Jesus carrying, bearing all of our sin. It was always the plan for Jesus to be crushed. Why? For the satisfaction of our sin debt. Satisfaction of our sin debt. Now this is at the heart of what we believe. This is what makes, I think, this, the Four Servants song so interesting and, and important. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the reason that it's so powerful and it means so much to us is, is that it is a, a satisfactory sacrifice for us. We see this six times in this passage, but there's four in just in, in these next four verses, verses four through eight. And what we're going to find in these verses is substitutionary atonement. Has anybody heard of substitutionary atonement? Okay, some of us, so I'm, I'm going to explain it. Substitutionary atonement is the technical, nerdy way of, of why we're celebrating our lives were substituted for Jesus's life. This is a transaction. As simple as you can get, there is a transaction happening. Jesus is taking our life, and we're going to see that Jesus dying on the cross didn't necessarily have to do anything for us. Jesus dying on the cross could have just been Jesus dying on the cross. What we find in this text is why we celebrate that. What happened during this process and so let's look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Smitten by God, bearing, right? Bearing our sin. Keep that in mind. And so in these verses, um, you will see the white highlights on those verses. I really want us to think about this. All this stuff that happens to Jesus smitten, crushed, everything he goes through. Look at the white part. Everything he goes through is for us. It's for me, right? All that white part is James is a sinner, so Jesus had to go through this. And you're a sinner, and so Jesus went through this for you. He is bearing our griefs here. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Again, crushed. Why was Jesus crushed? Because he was Jesus? No. For us, for our sin, for our iniquities. Verse 6, the Lord laid upon him, on him, the iniquity of us all. And this is key here, that this is the Lord doing this. Again, when, when, when Jesus is being crushed here, he's not crushing Jesus, he's crushing you. He's crushing me. That's what this verse says. The Lord, God the Father, is laying James's sin and your sin on Jesus as he's being crushed. It's not just Jesus being crushed, it's us being crushed. There's a substitution there. That's why we get the better of the deal. We get Jesus's righteousness and his atonement for us, but our sin is being dealt with in this moment. Verse 8, he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. I don't think substitutionary atonement could be any clearer than it is in this passage. Four verses in a row explaining why we worship Jesus, why it matters that this guy dying is a benefit for us, right? The only way to satisfy the wrath against our sin was for God to pay it, which he did through the blood of Jesus. And so the question is, how do we know that it was satisfactory? How do we know that God the Father was satisfied for all of our sin? I mean, just in this room, incredible amounts of sin, no offense, but the world's sin, all of time, history, 
How do we know that it was satisfactory for all the sinners? Because of the satisfaction of seeing the servant successful. If you love S's this morning, I didn't do this intentionally. The satisfaction of seeing the servant successful. Verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And so the resurrection of Jesus is the receipt of the substitutionary transaction. The resurrection of Jesus is the receipt of the substitutionary transaction. Transaction complete. His, his rising is proof of purchase. We know Jesus accepted it because Christ is raised and he's satisfied. Key, it's important that Jesus is satisfied because God the Father is satisfied. This is huge for us. We can know our sin can be satisfied by our faith in Jesus Christ. All of our sin, completely satisfied. Remember that, that this is the way Jesus felt about it. This is the way the Father feels about it. The satisfaction of the Father is in the successful plan and action that we call the gospel. The gospel is the satisfaction of the Father. Jesus came, lived perfectly, died for us, rose from the dead to save sinners. And so the Father is satisfied in the glory of the servant saving sinners. I don't know if I could say that again. The Father is satisfied in the glory of the servant saving sinners. Do you see the satisfaction in the Father there? I know we don't think about it. We think Easter, we think about ourselves. We're satisfied, thank you, Jesus. We think that God the Father is satisfied in our satisfaction. Yes. Why is Jesus satisfied after the resurrection? Because of us. And he did the coolest thing ever. Right? And so let's talk about the satisfaction of Jesus. First off, he was satisfied to work silently, to put his head down and just do the work. If anybody had a righteous gripe against everything that happened against him, Jesus was the one guy who could really just complain about what he was going through. And yet in verse 7, it says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opens not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. How many of us complain about work? That's all right. I'm, I'm assuming by no hands going up, that means all of us, right? Yes, at one point, it's okay. <coughs> of course we do. And, and here we have Jesus doing the most difficult, important work in human history who can absolutely complain about it, and yet he doesn't. Sometimes we complain at work because it's others that cause us to work harder, their mistakes, their neglect, whatever it might be. And Jesus is doing all this work, not surrounded by people who are making mistakes, but by people who hate him, who are literally trying to kill him. Very bad day at work. And yet he does this silently, wisely, trusting, knowing how things are going to turn out. He does this silently, just like you know, if you're a parent or grandparent and you work so hard for your kids and you, go to, you do a hard day at work and it's okay, it's satisfying, even though sometimes we're stepped on or, or stepped over, but our satisfaction is in providing for our family, right? And so our love for who we're doing it for replaces that being really upset. And so we can do our work silently and with satisfaction because of those we love. And Jesus loves God the Father, and he loves those who the Father gave him. He loves these sinner sheep that, that, he's, that he's saving. And so Jesus was satisfied to, to work silently all the way to the slaughter of the cross. He even considered it a satisfactory life. How many of us would, I mean, let's just be honest, miracles aside, would think that the life of Jesus was kind of boring Never lied? Really? Like, how much fun can you have never committing one single sin? 
And yet he was satisfied to do this, to live a satisfactory life. And again, this ties into substitutionary atonement. He needs to live a perfectly satisfactory life for us. Otherwise, the substitution is pointless. If Jesus lives a sinful life, there's no reason to substitute it because we're going to suffer anyway. The whole point is he lives this, this, this satisfactory life. In verse 9 it says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now the first part of that, if you're into prophecy and there's over 300 that are completed in the, the life and ministry of Christ, well, you find one of them right there. He's going to die with rich people and, and, and with sinners. And so the people on the cross and then Joseph's grave, who he's buried in. And so prophecy is just awesome like that because God is awesome. And so you see that right there. But the other part of that is that there was no deceit in his mouth. And I know sometimes we don't think about it. We think of Jesus as just being stoic in a sense. Charlton Heston, right, version of Jesus. Just every word is stoic. But Jesus is a very cool guy. He's a holy guy. He was the guy you would want to hang out with more than anybody. Doesn't get angry. He's not mean. He doesn't lie. If he says something that upsets you, it's probably for your own good. Like he's exactly the kind of person you want to be around, which is exactly what we needed to satisfy in the substitution. He lived a satisfactory life. He was satisfied to live a satisfactory life for us, that we would not be satisfied to live. We would say it's boring. And he did this because he's satisfied to sacrifice. He put his head down. He works silently. Doesn't commit sin. He lives a satisfactory life so he could sacrifice it for you. He's led to the slaughter, verse 7, yes, but it also says that he led himself to the slaughter. He knows what's happening. Verse 10, his soul makes an offering for guilt. And verse 12, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So Jesus offers himself. Yes, he was led to the slaughter, but he led himself to the slaughter. No one could stop Jesus if, if he didn't want to be stopped. He went willingly. Now mark this, this is also the fifth time that substitutionary atonement is mentioned that everything Jesus is going through, which should have been us led to the slaughter, not Jesus. But it was, he was satisfied to sacrifice himself because he was satisfied to see the offspring. This is where we started in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So number six, right there. Jesus is satisfied to see that the unrighteous sinner has been made righteous on account of him. That is the satisfaction of Jesus. He is so happy because me and you, anyone who has faith in Jesus, has found satisfaction in him, that your sin has been paid for. He's happy for you. You know, I wondered earlier about Jesus' reaction to his resurrection. How fun, exciting that must have been. But also as we talked about in the first verse, that he's exalted, that he goes back to heaven and he sits at the right hand of God. How satisfying must that be to sit down next to God and just look at God the Father? We did it. This plan, we did it. It had to be so satisfying and for then to be in that throne room and what happens after Jesus ascends to the right hand of God 
He sends the Holy Spirit. Imagine being in that room. That's what we're looking at. Christ ascends after the resurrection and then the Holy Spirit comes to earth. And imagine the satisfaction of Jesus looking at the Holy Spirit come, giving people ears to hear, to see the gospel and to see the whole world just turned on its head, right? The world turned upside down, it says in Acts. All because of what Jesus did to ascend to the right hand and just watch the next step of the gospel spreading. That is why he is satisfied. That's why it says, after he rose, after he came back, after he was crushed and opened his eyes, he was satisfied to see the offspring. He was satisfied to see you, church. That's why he did it. You are the satisfaction of Jesus. Yes, he has satisfaction with the Father. And like I said, that, that relationship between him and the Father is wonderful. But he is so satisfied to save you. It brings me joy just to think about. Like, I love God. You just love our God. There's so much love and joy here. I also love that God shares this behind-the-scene look at, at what's happening. Anybody else like behind-the-scenes footage, uh, a footage making of? That's what this is. 700 years before this takes place, before Jesus steps foot on earth, God telling Isaiah... Here's the plan. A lot of blood and crushing and bad anguish is going to happen. But here is my servant. Here's why this is important. Here is your hero. Here is your savior. Here's your plan. Here's the hero of the plan. This is the way it's going to happen. And then, even peeking ahead, he shows us the reaction of Jesus after that plan already happens 700 years before it happens. So wrap your mind around that. And so the question is, is Jesus your hero? Is Jesus your savior? Do you find satisfaction in your relationship with him, those of you who are Christian? Because there is satisfaction for the saved sinner as well, right? That's why we're here. Now, the first thing for the saved sinner it does is it satisfies our desire for spiritual healing. It satisfies our desire for spiritual healing. Spiritual healing only comes from faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. That's the reason this whole plan had to be come up with. There was something wrong. This was the plan to fix it. And we know in Revelation that it was fixed. As sinners by nature, we are at war with God. We are making decisions against God. This leads to an unsatisfying life of chasing fleeting satisfaction. Not to mention, we know that, that we are guilty And we try to replace that void in our life with religious devotion to any and everything. Sports, heroes, bands, whatever it might be, you name it. We try to replace a void in our life that is for Jesus. We find spiritual healing from the guilt of sin. Here in verse 12, uh, I'm sorry, 10c, when his soul makes an offering for guilt... And among many things that happen in the resurrection is that there's a successful transaction for our guilt. This is huge. I don't know what you've done in your life. I know this was huge for me after coming to Christ. After I came to the faith, having that moment, which was actually an Easter Sunday, I believe 1997. I don't remember what the message was, but I remember realizing in that moment that my guilt was forgiven because I had confessed it. I had confessed it, I had repented of it, but I remember that Easter feeling it, understanding that I don't have to feel guilty about this thing that I've confessed and repented of. And that's what it's saying here. This is a successful guilt sacrifice. And so the question this morning is, if you do feel guilty, if that's the Lord, it's because you need to confess and repent of something. Not having guilt in this sense doesn't mean that you shouldn't feel bad for what you should feel bad about. 
it means that if you've confessed it and repented of it, you should definitely not feel bad. That's a whole nother conversation. Only the enemy can condemn you, right? Because that's condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ for something that you've already confessed and repented of. You should feel no guilt. Get over it. Jesus died for it. Where's the guilt? Punishment has been handled. So if there's a, a sin that you feel guilty of, you just need to go to Jesus. He, he's provided that solution for you. We're also spiritually set free from having to sin. Another of my favorite parts, verse 5d, with his wounds we are healed. Now I believe this is about spiritual healing. That, that he is healing us <laughs> not only dealing with our past and our guilt, but with today. By his stripes we are healed today. By his wounds we are healed today and throughout the rest of our life. In Romans 6.6, 6, I know a lot of you know Romans 6 is maybe my favorite chapter in the Bible. But Paul writes, we know that our old self was crucified, this ties into the crucifixion, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. How can you not love that? You were a slave to sin. Is it possible to live a sinless life now? Not really, but technically, yes. Right, that's what Romans you know, 6 is about. We can now not sin. If you do not have faith in Jesus Christ, if he is not your savior, you cannot not sin. You are a slave to sin. But by his wounds, we are healed from that. We can now actually, and the Holy Spirit is in us now, helping us, don't sin, right? That guilt, praise God, praise that guilt he gives us. Don't sin, guys. You don't have to sin anymore. And so we have the freedom not to sin and the freedom from the guilt. Is that not a satisfying life? To not have to sin and to not feel guilty. Now, it also satisfies our desire to know God. In verse 5c, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Who is him? Jesus. What did he bring us? Peace. He bought us peace. He brings us peace. You can know God. How many of you would like to know God? Yes, right? That, that's what this is about, the resurrection, to know God, the, the, the way has been provided. If you are a Christian, you can know God. If you've called on faith it, to Jesus in faith this morning, the Holy Spirit has given you ears to hear, right, and eyes to see. To everybody else who's not at church this morning, this is nonsense. To everybody posting stuff on social media, you know, about Jesus, making fun of us, it's nonsense. If you don't think this is nonsense, and if you think this is the most awesome thing you've ever heard, you already have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You could not think otherwise without God already letting him know he knows you so that you can know him. You already have the Holy Spirit inside of you that raised Jesus from the dead, Romans 8, 11. If you've ever wondered, how did Jesus say that God, you know, forsook him? Well, how, how did he still remain God? And, and how did he raise from the dead then if there was a connection lost with the Father? Well, it says in Romans, the Holy Spirit hung on to him and pulled him back through, back into that relationship. And praise God, took all of us with him through that. The way has been made through Jesus for the unrighteous sinner to know God, to pray and speak to God as God speaks to us through his word and through his spirits in us. Having a satisfactory relationship with God is possible. But how many of us are living that way? 
Like I know, I, I think I know what a lot of us believe, but how many of us are satisfied, satisfied with our relationship with God? Like it's everything we want it to be. I'm telling you, you're not there. Or you can go further. If you do not have a satisfactory relationship with God, it is not God, it is you. The way has been made, goodness gracious. Praise God. The way has been made for us to know God. And so what are we doing about it? And the saved sinner also finds satisfaction over fear of the future. Fear of the future. Right? We see it, you know, maybe you don't see people running around saying, I'm afraid of the future, but when you see everything in our society is to make you look and feel younger, that's a cry that people are afraid to get older and they're afraid of the future. Yet because of the resurrection, we do not have to be afraid. We, the opposite afraid, the future, bring it on, right? We have Jesus. Our eternity is, is secured, it's paid for. The resurrection is the transaction. It's been paid for. Atoned for, all of it, completely satisfied. According to Paul, again in Romans 6, 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly, certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so, part of the joy of the resurrection and the satisfaction of the resurrection, selfishly, is that we know we're going to get one. Right? I mean, that's, that's part of the satisfaction, right? We're not just singing, yay, Jesus, you did that. But yay, Jesus, through that, we are going to experience the satisfaction of opening our eyes and seeing Jesus without a filter, seeing each other spiritually pure with Jesus someday. It's going to be so satisfying. It's so important that we be satisfied spiritually. It's the one satisfaction that can affect every area of our life, right? Every area of our life is a spider web, ties into some other area. You have a bad day at work or something, affects every other area of our life, but our spiritual health and satisfaction can go a long way. If you've been going through Revelation with us, people are getting martyred and yet still happy and joyful because of the resurrection and all the wonderful promises Jesus gives them. So if you are tired and frustrating and hurting this morning, you know the world does not provide satisfaction. Distraction, yeah, the world's good at distracting, but changing your name or your gender or your job or washing your face, or staring at your phone, or binging your show will not bring you satisfaction. It'll distract you. There's some satisfaction in not having to think about this stuff. But satisfaction that deals with your past guilt and everything you've done in such a way that if you confess and repent of it, you don't even have to think about it. Satisfaction today to be healthy spiritually and know God in, in, in a satisfactory way and the satisfaction of knowing that eternity, it's gonna be awesome. I have nothing to fear in eternity. And this satisfaction is only found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so this morning, if you would agree and sing along with, with Mick Jagger, right? You can't get no satisfaction. And this morning, I suggest you follow another rolling stone, the stone that was rolled away from the empty tomb when Jesus was resurrected because there is satisfaction in Jesus. When Jesus was resurrected, he was satisfied. He was so happy and satisfied because yes, bragging rights accomplished the most insanely cool, holy, awesome thing in history, satisfaction, you know, yes. But because he saved you, because he saved his offspring, 
That is why he was satisfied. That satisfaction he knew was coming was the reason he got beat to a pulp because he knew someday people would be seated and come to him for salvation and come through the way he provided. He did not mind that process so that we can come behind him and come into and be united with him in his resurrection. So that let this Easter be the Easter that you submit to Jesus, that you follow Jesus, that you have spiritual satisfaction in Jesus, who is our resurrected Lord. Let me pray. God, you are awesome. I, every passage of scripture that we go through, it's just, I mean, honestly, you, you know, Lord, as I confessed before the congregation, when I was a young believer, I actually questioned whether I would ever get bored with you. Like, how many times can you read the Bible? Like, and like what can you get out of it? And yet every time I come to a new passage or a passage I've read a hundred times, I just see your glory. I see your, your, your strong arm in Christ. I see you working. I see you in Christ. I am continuously blown away. This is truly your word given to us. The only reason that you would give us the plan ahead of time, you know, and then give us a book like Revelation afterwards is because you want us to know that this has always been the plan, that you knew us before we ever existed, and that you've called some of us by name. Let us run to you, Lord. And let this also be an Easter, Lord, where I hope this is a year and a season where people who don't like you, who think you're silly or ridiculous or that this is nonsense, that this would be a season in their life where they realize the gospel is the best news ever. No one is like Jesus, has ever been, will ever be like Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for paying the cost for our sin on the cross. And we thank you for the hope we have in the resurrection, that proof of purchase, Lord, and that we get to look forward to that. And we do, Lord. We thank you and praise you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.